We're in uh, the book of John this morning, so if you have your Bible, you can turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, and this is a uh, very, very famous verse in Scripture. Very famous. Um, John 14, 6 is quoted a lot, used a lot, uh, and misused a lot. And here's what it says. John chapter 14, uh, starting in verse 5, it says this, Thomas, and that's the disciple Thomas. Remember where we're at in Scripture right now is Jesus has removed himself from public ministry. So he's talking to the most intimate of his followers that know him and know his teaching. Um, He's he's talking to those guys, and he talks to Thomas here um, and and the rest of them. And Thomas responds... um, to Jesus' discussion about heaven and going back and being with God in, in the Father's house. And, and he says to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? We're a little lost, we're a little confused, we don't, we don't know where you're going. Um, so how are we supposed to follow? How are we supposed to know the way? And then Jesus answers with these words, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm realizing something, and I'll just speak from the gut here because I'm, I'm tired. I mean, I'm like 37, and I'm acting like I'm a lot older, just soul-weary, tired, you know, the, the kinds of things that my good buddy Ed Underwood could get away with <laughs> a lot easier. I'm a little weary, and I'm beginning to realize in a clearer fashion that whenever I come to a passage of Scripture, especially well-known, one like, well-known passages like this, there is, there is a right way to teach it, and then there's another right way to teach it. What I mean by that is, with all of Scripture, it means what it means. So there's a right way to teach it. It's trying to be faithful to what it's saying and, and interact with it at that level. And that's tr- it's, it's right and it's true. There's another right way, though, and that's what the peer group, what my peer group would have me teach on it. And more and more and more, I'm beginning to realize that these two things diverge. And, and, and sometimes they're just not even in the right um, world. And there's very little overlap. And so I come to this passage and I I just realized that a sacred, sacred text of Christian fundamentalism is, is something that everyone would be waiting for me to give a Christian fundamentalist sermon about. Um, what I mean by that is whenever we talk about the truth, the truth of Jesus, we use this, this passage. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. He's the truth. So that means you're wrong, you Buddhist, um, you uh, Muslim, you non-religious person, you whatever. You're wrong, this is right, I win, you lose. It says so right here. There's no getting around it. Jesus is true, therefore, you're false. 
And, and so I want to teach it that way because I want the accolades, because I'm human, right? And, and it's a real weird thing. I've, I've never really experienced it, but we get nailed a lot these days as, as being a quote-unquote liberal church, um, which is just a baffling thing to me, but that's the truth. And so I would want to not play into that by kind of teaching the right message according to my peer group. And so here's, let me just explain to you how that kind of a sermon comes about. Truth claims, any truth claim, I am here and not downtown right now. Okay, that's a truth claim. I'm saying that where I exist is right here. Truth is necessarily exclusive. Because I'm right here, it means I'm nowhere else. Does that make sense? Because I'm here, I'm not downtown. I'm also not in my house right now. I'm also not skiing Mount Bachelor right now. I'm here. Okay? It's necessarily exclusive. So the fundamentalist message about this text takes Jesus making the comment that he is the truth and recognizes that there's an exclusivity that comes from that. And then they take that exclusivity and then that becomes the driving thrust of the message. Because Jesus made a truth claim that necessarily means if he's the truth, other things aren't the truth, I'm now going to talk to you about how you're not the truth. Do you understand the logic? If I say I'm here right now, though, what is the primary thing I'm talking about? The primary thing I'm talking about is that I'm right here. Not that I'm not somewhere else. I mean, that comes secondarily. But, but my thrust, my point is, hey, guys, I'm right here right now. Jesus talking with his disciples. He's not talking with a Muslim. He's not talking with a Buddhist. He's not even talking with a Samaritan. He's talking to his Jewish disciples about some very confusing things to them because he's going to be with the Father and they're lost and there's like a death threat on them. There's, there's a price on their head and, and it's just, it's all going down and they're like, we don't want to be anywhere but where you're at. Where are you going to be at? How do we, we get to where the Father's at? This is strange stuff you're talking. What is the way to be with the Father? And Jesus says, you want to know the way? I am the way. I am what's true. And I am your life. I am I'm, I'm the conduit. I am the bridge that gets you to where the Father's at. In other words, hey guys, um... Trust me. Trust me, my, my testimony is valid. What I'm saying to you is believable. In a world of confusion, you can look to me and there's clarity. And this can be what you commit yourself to. You don't have to look at all the other options to try and figure out the way to God or to figure out the right way. You can just look to me. This is how you'll get to where God's at. This is how you'll be with him. Be reconciled with God. So when we take his words and focus on the exclusivity, we're actually missing the heart of what Jesus is talking about. I mean, we're missing the heart of what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is pouring his, out, his heart out to people he loves and saying, here's how. He's being inclusive 
I came to offer you life that you could be reconciled to the Father, to give you a way back. I'm trying to bring you in. I'm trying to include you on this wonderful blessing thing. And that is his primary focus. He's a redeemer. And when we stand over here and make our primary thrust about exclusivity and why you're wrong, it's foreign to what Jesus is saying. Jesus wasn't talking to other religions. He was talking to the religious and telling religious people, us, that we could really, really, really trust him. That we could bank on him. That It's a good bet to bet on him. That, that it's true. We've gotten so caught up in being right that we miss the... the that the whole point of this passage was speaking to us, not equipping us to speak to other people and beat them over the head. It's a very intimate passage. I mean, I, when I was in seminary, I went to a good seminary with good people and good men. I had a theology professor, though. He was a great man, and he mentored a lot of the faculty, and he was in his, his late 60s, and uh, he assigned a quiz and, and there was questions and then there was answers that were the right answers to the quiz. And one of his questions was, how do we know that the Bible is inerrant? And the doctrine of inerrancy means without error, that these 66 books are without error. How do we know that? The right answer we were supposed to put was John 17, 17. John 17, 17, Jesus says this, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word, your logos, is truth. That was the, the proof text we were supposed to put. I, I, uh, I was a real hothead in seminary, and so I refused to put that answer and then went up and, and after the quiz and argued for a half hour with the, the professor. And I said, this is absolutely wrong. What you're doing here is not okay. And, and he says, what do you mean? I've been teaching this class for 27 years. Nobody has ever told me that that's wrong. I said, listen, um, the word for scriptures is graphos. The word for logos means, you know, word, statement, message. He knows this. And, and I'm like, when Jesus is talking about the word or, or the message of God, he's not specifically talking about the writings I was like, he's, he's talking about the heart of the gospel, the heart of God's message, and it is true. But you're saying that this is a proof text to say that these 66 books of the Bible are inerrant. It's like, that's not true. This text does not give you that. And then I said to him, not only that, but when Jesus said this, the New Testament wasn't even written yet. The New Testament came later, and so at best, this text talks about the message previous to, to the New Testament. And I said, I believe in inerrancy. I, I believe wholeheartedly in the doctrine of, of, of inerrancy and the authority of Scripture. But I cannot develop party lines that are wrong. We have to learn how to argue for it a different way. It doesn't matter that this has become culturally acceptable as an answer. Um, so we debated and we went on and we had meetings and he came basically to say, well, you got a point. 
And then the next semester, it was still on the test. Okay. I'm tired. I'm not liberal. I don't want to teach what I'm supposed to teach because of my peer group. There's a, oh, how he loves us. There's such a, a beauty of God in Christ. You know, Jesus reflects that same fatherly love. He, he, he cries over Jerusalem and says, oh, how I wish I could just gather you up like a mother hen. If you're like my chick, I just wish I could gather you up. And he's talking to his disciples who are lost and confused and saying, here, here's how. He's not acting like the Pharisees that goes around and tries to win religious debates. We tend to act like the Pharisees that obsess about going around and and winning religious debate. That's That's a different discussion for a different time. It's not exactly the point, the heart, what Jesus is trying to say. The religious, in a bad way, religious people in a bad way use words to tell others that they are wrong. Jesus was saying these words to tell the religious that they were wrong in some sense. The other ways, the other ideas are not true. Follow me and trust me. You, my followers, disciples. Um, Let's turn to Matthew 7. What was Jesus getting at? What was Jesus getting at? We'll begin in uh, verse 7. Matthew 7, 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. He just gave a plug for Redux, by the way, just in case you didn't know it. Um, <laughs> which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how much to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, For this sums up the law and the prophets. It says then in verse 13, Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many will enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. We tend to chop up not only what Jesus says, but all of Scripture into little bits. And when we chop it up too much, we lose the unified whole of the, of the whole thing. Jesus here uses a metaphor that he uses elsewhere about him being the gate, that, that we're his sheep and he's the shepherd, and, and that um, he's like the gate. Um, and the good shepherd like, takes care of his sheep, and the bad shepherd just leads them to destruction. He doesn't care about the sheep. And the, the bad shepherd is the religious leader's. So we see some language here. You who are evil know how to give good gifts. He's making a claim about about us and how we're constituted, what our identity is. And then he juxtaposes that with God's 
character, his identity, and that he's pure, he's holy, he is love, like it says in 1 John. God is love. And he juxtaposes that and says, um, parody of reasoning, if you guys know how to give good gifts, how much more do I, does God know how to give good gifts? And then he says, um, do unto others as you'd have them them do unto you. This is all summed up in the Law and the Prophets. The Law and the Prophets is the Old Testament. If, if you're referring to the Old Testament in Jesus' day and whatnot, you're referring to the Law, which is kind of like the five books of Moses. And then you're referring to the Prophets, which is like the minor prophets and the major prophets. And, and that's kind of like the, the breadth, the width and the breadth of Scripture in the Old Testament. The Law and the Prophets. What does the Law teach us? The law teaches us how to structure our actions and our decisions to be right with and to be reconciled with God, to live justly so that we can be with a just God. What do the prophets prophets teach us? The prophets condemn us when we don't do that, that you have been unfaithful to God. You've not chosen to, to follow him in the way that he has laid out for you. You've chosen to go a different way, and it explains this, and then also talks about how you're being disciplined in some sense now, but that a loving and redeeming God will restore you and bring you back. He will reconcile you, his people, once again to himself. The book of Judges, just a quick aside here, if you turn to Judges, Judges 2, verse 10, it says this, After that whole generation, that's Joshua's generation, the people that had seen God bring them into the land, the the land of Israel, um, and established them there. After that generation had gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The book of Judges, um, you you can draw it as a cycle. It's people who were following God that then lead into people who are not following God. And then God himself sends a deliverer. That's what the judges were. It was God raising up a leader who would go and find his people and restore them and bring them back a a, a redeemer, a savior for the people. And they would then come back to the Lord. And then the cycle would repeat itself over again. They would get complacent. And then these, these laws and these rules that God had given to people for them to stay with him. And to be righteous, to be with God, to be holy, to be set aside unto him. They would begin to forget that. They would go their own way. And each would do what was right in his own eyes. They would go a different way. And then it would go bad and they would be estranged from God. And then God who loves them would hear the cries and he is a redeemer. And so into this mix, he would send someone to save them. And then they would be once again reconciled to God. All of scripture is really dealing with the outgrowth of the Garden of Eden. God has set up this this situation where Adam and Eve are with him. They're with God. They have life. They have the relationship. They have, they have peace. They have it all. God gives them a commandment and says, 
Do not eat of this tree. Do not pursue glory independent of me. Submit to me. Don't strive to maximize life, to pursue your own glory outside of me. Don't reject me. And a promise is made and and Adam and Eve fall and sin enters the world. And the essence of that sin was a rejection of God. It was a rejection of God's way and a choosing of a different way. I mean, do you understand what I'm saying here? At, at the core, it was saying, no, God, we don't believe that's the way. We believe there's a different way. And we chose that. Ever since that moment, that's the drama we're living out. That's what the Pharisees missed. The Pharisees thought it was about them in their spiritual pride becoming greater and greater in jumping through spiritual and religious uh, hoops, doing spiritual gymnastics, and creating a divide between them and others who were less spiritual. It said in Matthew 7 there, you who are evil. See, there's this thing called sin. And it puts us all on the same playing field. And when we're rescued out of it, the one who's the redeemer, the one who's elevating us is God, not ourselves. God says in Peter, he exalts the humble and he lays low the pride. Why? Because if you think you're doing this on your own, you're not understanding what is really happening. It is God who saves God saves sinners. That's the essence of the gospel. And it's not about us working our way up here. It's about God providing a redeemer, a savior, someone sent to basically heal the rift, the divide that sin created. So instead of sending judge after judge or prophet after prophet, God finally sends Jesus. And Jesus came to save. He came to save. Once and for all, die for our sins, that we would have the opportunity to be restored or reconciled to God. Jesus came to include people in the greatest of all relationships, the one we were meant for, the one we were created for, that relationship with God. He came to be the way. He came to be the true thing, not the false thing. He came to restore life, that we might have life to the full, that our experience would be what it was always intended to be, not a false satisfaction, but a rich restoration. Augustine said, God, you have made us for yourselves, and our hearts are restless till we find rest in you. Until we come back into that relationship that we were created for, there will not be that harmony, there will not be that peace that we all just desperately hunger for. So all of Scripture is about this returning to God. All of Jesus' message were, were forget religion and your own self-glory and your own maximization and being proud about all the little hoops you're jumping through. Follow me. Choose me. Confess me. I'm the way. I'm the way. And it's, it's really at, at the heart of it is simple and it's a, it's a message of love and it's a message of hope. 
In a very real way, it's our chance at the garden again. It's easy for us to say, I wasn't there. I didn't do what Eve did. I wasn't deceived. And the reality of it is, you have the same choice today that they had. The same choice to trust God and forsake all else, or to doubt God that he's really what is true, that he's really the way, he's really life. To doubt that and seek to do right in your own eyes, to seek to find your own way. We have the same choice that Adam and Eve had. It's weighty, isn't it? We make ourselves immune from that. It's not my mess. I didn't create that mess. I'm the victim here. God, come pull me out of the mess that Adam and Eve created. God said, yeah, I'd love to. Here's the deal. Choose me. I'm I'm trying to redeem you. I'm sending a savior. He's the way. He's the truth. Okay, he's the life. Just forsake everything else and grab hold of that. It's like a, you know, the rescue helicopter in Kevin Costner's epic movie, I don't even remember the name of, like, (laughs) Gladiator. It wasn't Gladiator. (laughs) Guardian. Epic. Um, It's like the rescue helicopter putting down the little raft thing, right, or a little cage thing, and it's like, that's the way. It's the truth, and that is the life. All other ways (laughs) lead to something bad. Um. Unless you're a mermaid, okay? And so, so take this. I'm, I'm sending you, I love you so much that I'm sending my only begotten son to save whoever would believe in him. So we have this choice. Um, we, we got the offer of the garden. We can restore the mistake that was made in the garden. We get the chance to do differently than Adam and Eve. We get the same deal they got. Have you really felt the weight of that ever in your life? Like, I mean, sitting there, no one knows what's going on, like in your head, not the person you left, not the person you're right. Have you ever really felt the weight of that? That you have the option to trade all else to take the answer, the truth that God has given, and make that your all Jesus is saying to his disciples, don't worry, just take me. We've done something really weird with Christianity in America. We've, we've, we've taken ourselves out of the pit that we're in. We've gotten rid of the idea of sin. We've gotten rid of the idea that we're fundamentally broken. And we, we kind of start ourselves off neutral it's not great, it's not really bad. We kind of just, we're the whatever, we're neutral. And God offers this wonderful gift to just give us the icing on top of the cake. Here's how you have heaven. No, why not? Heaven sounds good. I'll add that to my other life dreams. I want to travel Europe. I want to d- retire rich. I want to shoot 72 in my golf score. I want this, I want that. And, and if I can have heaven too, that sounds wonderful. And there's not this sense of urgency that we are drowning. We are estranged from God because of sin. Anyone who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins, says James. We do not naturally choose God's way. We go against our conscience. 
we go against what we know is right, we, we have that little prick in our head, and if we begin to like turn away from it, eventually we'll just numb ourselves to it. But we know that something really weird is going on. We know that we're not fundamentally all good. We're not perfect, we're not holy, we're not pure, we're not white paint, we're some kind of gray. And we are in need of uh, forgiveness, rescue, salvation, and redemption to be reconciled with God because gray paint can't mix with white paint. It would make white paint gray. We can't mix with a holy God if we're unholy. We have to be purified. We have to be restored. Christ came to make us white paint so we could mix with God and be united with him. Jesus says, I'm the way. Trust it. It's real simple. It's what God's always been about. No change, Old Testament, New Testament. God has always been about bending down and trying to be a part of restoring you to what he wanted originally. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Trust it. Uh, I'm studying for my atheism class that I'm going to be teaching starting this week. So this might sound a little weird, but whenever you can work the Marquis de Sade into a sermon, you should. Um, so this is a, a picture of, of the only picture, actual picture of Marquis de Sade, pronounced Sade, not Sade or Sade or anything like that. Um, this is uh, the guy that we get the word sadism and sadist from. He lived in the time of the Enlightenment and the French Revolution, and he took, he took atheism. I'm going to be careful how I say this. Um, he took a part of atheism to its logical conclusion. Not all atheists are going to become immoral. Right? Okay, it's a mistake Christians make. If you're an atheist, you must be amoral. And, I, and there's probably a lot of atheists that are, that are more moral in some sense than, than some Christians. Um, but he certainly recognized that in an atheistic world, there was nothing that could tell him that, that he was wrong. You see? So let me just read a quote from a dialogue between, it's called a dialogue between a priest and a dying man. And so he sets up this dialogue. He's kind of the dying man um, speaking for him. And, and it's a dialogue between a priest and a dying man. And he says this, Your God is a machine you fabricated to serve your passions. You manipulated it so that it suited them, suited your passions. But the moment it interfered with mine, I kicked it out of my way and was glad to do so. Nature shaped my soul, which is the result of the disposition she formed in me while pursuing her own ends and needs. And as she needs vices just as much as virtues, whenever she wanted to rouse me to evil, she did so. Just as whenever she wanted a good deed for me, she roused me in the desire to perform one. I did just as I was instructed by nature. This dialogue between a priest and a dying man, I won't give you the the um, not appropriate for Sunday morning details, but it, it ends with this quote. Um, it says, After he had been a little while in their arms, the preacher, he became one whom nature had corrupted, all because he had not succeeded in explaining what a corrupt nature is. We've got a real fundamental problem in our Christianity because we don't start with the starting point. We don't take serious the fact that we are estranged from God. That there's a separation there. That sin is real. That, that in us is this inability to always do what is right. 
Now we can take it like he said and say, whatever desire is in me, I'm just going to call good or okay because it's what nature is just doing to me. And I'm just going to submit to that. And you can't tell me I'm wrong because there is no higher moral authority. Or unlike the preacher in his story, we can explain what a corrupt nature really is. That, that sin for us becomes something we're acquainted with. We know the taste of it. We live with it. I live with it. I don't know about you. I get it. And if we don't have that as our starting point, if we don't talk about it in church, if we don't talk about it as Christians, if we don't understand the disease, the antidote has no power for us. There's no desire for it. There's no urgency for it. And, and these people Jesus was, talk, was talking to, they were animal sacrifices and everything else going on. They were intimately acquainted with the disease that he was the cure for. You want out? You want to get to be with the Father? Here's how. You follow me. It'll work in the antidote. God sent me for this reason and this reason alone to save you. Jesus came that he might seek and save the lost. And it breaks the cycle of judges. And when we understand the need for that, we desperately cling to it. Do you know that this is the only time in the book of John that he uses the word hati, the word way here, the Greek word way? He uses it with John the Baptist early on, but this is the first time, only time in Jesus' mouth where he uses that word. Not only that, um, Acts, Acts 9-2, I can, let me just flip to it. Acts 9-2, we see a little bit about what the early Christians were called. We'll just begin in verse 1, but this is, this is a story of Saul who later became Paul, the Apostle Paul, but it says in verse 1, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. So the people who were following this teacher, this, this leader, this priest, Jesus, okay, his disciples, Paul is, is so diametrically opposed to them because they're, they're trying to pursue a way other than what the, the, the leaders are teaching in that day. And it's heretical. And Paul goes after him and he wants to kill him. He wants to stamp it out. So he went to the high priest and he asked, he asked the high priest for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, formal title, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. This is what Christians were called early on. They basically saw this as the Messiah. The Messiah was the one always promised to lead them out and to restore them. And it becomes much clearer when Jesus shows up that this is a very spiritual thing going on. That they're being restored to the kingdom of God, to be with God. And Jesus is that Messiah, the one sent from God to save. They're followers of the way. Jesus said he was the way. These people took it. They banked on it. They gambled on it. They trusted it. That's what faith is. And they were persecuted for it. They lost because of it. They, they in, endured bodily harm. Their bank accounts looked the worst for it. Their, their social status got all messed up because of it. But that didn't matter, you see, because this was the way. That's why Jesus said it's true. Because it's going to cost so much, so you know it better be reliable. So, Jesus, I, I am. Ego a me, I am, emphasis in Greek, I am the way. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. From now on, um, when, because you knew me, you now know the Father. 
And you know what? Um, yeah, that's going to happen. It's gonna, that's going to happen. And if you want to bow to that, if you want to reject me, if you want to serve that, if you want to do what's right in your own, what, in your own eyes, you want to try to choose a, a different way, a different path, you can do that. But it's not the way. It won't get you there. It won't deal with the disease. It won't deal with sin. It won't restore you to God. It'll just be religious ritual, religious works. You know, I, I fundamentally believe that we're all looking for our way back. We're estranged from God. Um, I, I don't mean to say this flippantly, but everyone I've known that's been adopted has always had some desire to, to understand their story, to understand where they came from that way. We are estranged from God and we want to know our Father. We want our way back. We want to be reconciled. There's an instinctual desire that way. And I look around and I see depressed people everywhere, depressed Christians everywhere. And there are reasons, clinical reasons, chemical reasons, even spiritual reasons to be depressed. There's a lot of reasons we shouldn't be depressed though. And there's a lot of us that are in that category. We're depressed because we're not satisfied with what God gives us and we envy the wicked. Or because we have dreams and desires that we long to see fulfilled and we don't realize that those really in some sense are vanity and have nothing to do with what God has promised us and called us back to. But because we can't get ice cream, we, we cry the same way my kids cry at night when I tell them, no, we're not going to Ben and Jerry's tonight. And, and there's a lot of depression in the church that shouldn't be there. We're not satisfied followers of Christ. We're not satisfied children of, of a father, a heavenly father who loves us. We don't recognize the gift that we have, that everything has been promised to us. We're co-heirs with Christ. That means everything that, that was supposed to be there at the beginning, the garden, we're co-heirs with Christ to get it all back again. Let me ask you again, have you ever felt the weight of that? That decision and that promise, that blessing that's offered to you, that, that choice you have that's no different than the choice everyone has always had. Am I going to put my faith in God or am I going to reject God? I had a seminary professor who said it wonderfully. He said the whole story of the Old Testament was simply this. Choosing to bow a knee in the midst of the messiness, the struggles of life, and submit to God and trust God, or to walk a different way and to strive to fix and to heal the brokenness that is in this world, that is in our own, in our own hearts and souls. That that choice is really there. It's the same choice that was in the garden, same choice that's been there all along, the same choice that you and I have today when we go home and turn on football or any other TV show. The choice of, am I really going to submit? That's what faith is. It's not some flippant just accepting ice cream, uh, you know, icing on top of the cake. Let me just add heaven to all my other life dreams because it's all about my agenda. This is, this is, this is real faith, costly, costly grace in Bonhoeffer's phrase. Not cheap grace, this is costly grace. It's, it's a free offer, but it costs you everything. Have you ever felt the weight of that? There's an interesting thing about cats and dogs. I hate cats. Always have, always will. Um, I can't even lie to my kids. They say they like cats. I'm like, uh, I hate them. I'm sorry. My, my, my eight-year-old, six-year-old, they just, they don't know what to do with that. I don't like cats. 
Here's the real interesting thing. You love a dog. You really, really love a dog. That dog, he will think you are God. You really love a cat. You really work for a cat. You really pour into a cat. You love a cat. She will think she is God. <laughs> um, and, and not to say it in a really cliche way, but are, are, you, uh, are we cats? Are we cats? God has loved us. So I'm going to call the band back up here in a minute, and they're going to sing this song again because I really want us to worship this morning. And then I'm going to finish the sermon as soon as they're done, but the band can go ahead and come back up and, and play that song, and then we're going to close it down. But the real issue here is God so loved the world not that we could take that and run around and beat other people that believe different things over the head because it's about us being right in our spiritual pride and them being wrong. That's not it at all. I, I have become anti-fundamentalist, and I'm sorry if that offends, but I, I've really developed a distaste for legalism that doesn't understand grace. God so loved the world that he sent Jesus here that we would have that option to choose him and to grab onto that and to be pulled out of the mess that we're in, Psalm 40, out of the pit, out of the muck, out of the mire, to be restored with him. Oh, how a beautiful state, because he loves us. It's, it's, it's joy. So we're going to sing um, that song one more time, and if you guys would just close your eyes if you want to, but just belt it out, and then we'll, we'll just put a tag on this at the end.
family, sing it to him. message of Christ is about fidelity. You want to know what the Old Testament prophets talked about? It was about fidelity. Are we going to be faithful? Are we going to be true to God? Or are we going to be untrue? It's, it's about fidelity. Um, there's two verses I want to give you that, that are more, flesh this out a little bit more, two verses that are pretty well known. And the first one's from Matthew. Let me just, if we can get it on the screen. It says, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. And then in Luke, it says the same thing. I tell you the truth. Whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. Jesus preached a message of hope and encouragement that, that those of us who are under judgment already because we're sinners can look to him to be saved. Just like in the Old Testament, when there was a lot of snakes coming if, if you read the story and Moses created a bronze snake and all who looked to that were saved it was the way out it was, it was the, the way to let God heal the disease Jesus says if you acknowledge me if you choose me if, I, if you make me your way your truth and your life then I will do what I said and bring you with me to God when we take that message and we make it a message of judgment and we take, you have to confess Jesus and beat people over the head as if it's exclusive, we have the completely wrong tone. Everyone already is under judgment. Not because they're not a Christian, but because we're all sinners. That's the starting point. And Jesus offered hope. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest for your soul. I'm going to call you out of that. And when we go in there with judgment, we just completely get it. Just like the parable where Jesus says, I'm like the king who forgives this guy this great amount of debt. And then the guy in turn goes to someone who owes him a little and strangles him and tries to get the little out of him. And the king calls him back and says, you didn't get it, did you? As I did for you, the grace I showed you is what you're supposed to show to other people. Don't look at them strange because they owe you something. Don't look at them with judgment because I showed you grace. And so our message ought to reflect the hope, the love, the grace that Christ offers us. It's not our place to go judge. We're all under the curse. There's no one different. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. We got to get our message right. If Jesus were here today, he wouldn't brag about how he's the only way. He would implore us and say, God, Antioch, Forsake it all 
This is the church. It was God's plan for 2,000 years to be this light on a hill, to be this marvelous, wonderful thing. You can do it. You know, you really can. I'll work with you. I'll be there with you. You just throw it all in. You come together. You affirm. You encourage. You hope. You desire. You cry. You strive. Whatever it is to honor God, to lay hold of God, to do His work in this world, to be a part of, of what He wants for His kingdom. You do it. You can do it. I want you to do it. Be willing to choose the garden. Be willing to together choose me. Let me be the head of this church. Let this church, I want you guys to be my body, I think Christ would say. Meaning I am sovereign over you and I want to use you to do what I want to do in this world. You have so much potential, so much gifting, so much opportunity before you. Oh, how I love you. Oh, how I want you. Oh, how amazing it is. Just trust me. I'm the way, I'm the truth.